for today's program. Aaron Sheehan Dean received a BA from Northwestern University, his master's from the University of Virginia, and his PhD from the University of Virginia as well. He is currently the Fred C. Frey Professor of Southern Studies at Louisiana State University and the chair of its history department. He teaches courses on 19th century US history, the Civil War and Reconstruction, and Southern history. And Aaron is the author of Why Confederates Fought, Family and Nation in Civil War Virginia, and the Concise Historical Atlas of the US Civil War, as well as being the editor and co-editor of several other books. Aaron also served as co-editor of the Civil War America series at the University of North Carolina Press, which is currently turning out some of the best scholarship <laughs> on the era of the Civil War. His latest book, The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War, is available for purchase in our museum shop, and Aaron will be happy to sign copies for you <coughs> in our lecture. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Aaron Sheehan Dean. Thank you, and thanks to Graham as well for inviting me and to you all for showing up uh, today. I appreciate it. Um, as uh, was just said, I've uh, spent a lot of time in Virginia, um, and I have not been back here in a long time. Uh, so it's very exciting to be back here. Charles Bryan was president, of the, the person after whom this is uh, named in honor, was president of the VHS when I did research. Um, a lot of my first book, uh, Why Confederates Fought, is based on material that I, I um, drew on here in the archive. Um, let me start by trying to find my notes. Um, that would probably be a good place to begin. I don't have a formal, this is not a talk, I can't wander. I've got to pin myself down. I'm usually a wanderer, but we've got a PowerPoint. It was one or the other. Um, and I will do my best not to get too far away. It's not a formal talk. I'm not going to read my comments. Um, I'm going to try to sort of walk you all through the argument that I make in this book about the Civil War. And um, I've got some passages that I want to read, um, some primary sources that I'll, I'll refer to um, to try to illustrate the points that I'm making. And then some images that are, are important and some text from the book or sort of ancillary things that I will do this and we'll hopefully have time when we get done. Um, my friends always accuse me when it comes to lectures of trying to fit a 10 pound weight in a five pound sack. Um, so I will do my best to, to maintain an even pace. If it suddenly goes off the rails, somebody wave their hands and I'll try to slow down. Um, I wanna start with the big, so this is the sort of outline for where we're going today. Um, and, and so it's sort of two big parts, um, the, the ways in which the Civil War was awful um, and bloody and in some respects unrestrained and sometimes fought outside the bounds of both the laws of war and morality at the time, and also the ways in which the war was contained and in which participants restrained themselves and observed the laws of war and sort of common morality. And then I'll try to close by talking about why I think this matters at the time. So as the outline suggests, the sort of takeaway from my book um, is that I want us to think about the Civil War as both a war that was in some respects unrestrained and terribly bloody and violent. That is, how do we reach a casualty total of today's accepted figure of 750,000 dead um, and another several hundred thousand injured. That doesn't count civilians, and we can talk about numbers on civilian casualties later, um, but certainly tens of thousands in that category as well. 
So accounting for what produces that kind of a toll is important. And at the same time, I think that the Civil War could have quite easily been much worse with a casualty total uh, two or three times as high if certain things had been different about it. And so I want to try to do both those things at once. Um, and it may sound like my thesis is just wishy-washy, uh, that the war was awful and also not. Um, I hope that by the end I persuaded you that that's nuanced and sophisticated and not just a kind of cop-out. Um, because I think it does reflect um, a f sort of the full view that we now have of the various ways in which the war itself was fought. So I want to start by talking about what made the war deadly. And in particular here, what I'm thinking of is the kind of unnecessary violence, the ways in which participants on both sides um, enacted particularly lethal violence, but sometimes not quite lethal, but nonetheless serious violence against people in the war, um, and the ways in which those established patterns over the course of the war. So I want to start with sort of two military questions that had to be resolved very quickly and then got fought about over the course of the war, and then sort of three sets of things that are primarily, um, I think, political or really social questions. And the first issue is over the question of who could fight. And this is a, a, pro a kind of persistent problem in the Civil War. At the time, the people who could make war, under the laws of war, the kind of common, uh, commonly accepted framework is that only nations can fight wars. Individuals don't fight wars. Individuals can commit murder, or they can commit acts of treason. But um, collectively, only a nation can act. And so this presents a dilemma at the very beginning of the war for Lincoln, because of course, Lincoln can't acknowledge that the Confederacy is an independent nation, and yet it's only independent nations that can make war. And the question presents itself very early on as the Union Army begins taking Confederate prisoners. And so the question is, what becomes of those men? Are they in fact legitimate soldiers fighting under a national flag to whom in the course of ordinary 19th century war you would give the privileges and immunities of warfare. That is, you would take them prisoner. You would provide them with, uh, with hospital aid if they're injured. And you would protect their lives as though they were non-combatants once they move into that status of being captured. And that question is debated early on. We know the outcome. Um, and we may consider it a foregone conclusion. The Confederates will be captured by the Union and respected as enemy combatants and put into prison of war camps. And of course, this is no picnic, and we'll talk more about prisoner exchanges and the collapse of that cartel and, and all of the suffering and injustice that's done to prisoners. But the mere fact here of taking prisoners is an essential way of limiting the violence of the war. And it happens because Lincoln is forced into acknowledging this, right? Lincoln refers throughout the war to the Confederacy as the so-called Confederacy. You can sort of hear the air quotes every time he's compelled to reluctantly admit that, in effect, the Confederacy is an independent nation, and so these men, their lives need to be respected. The North debates this at the start of the war. I'll quote from a, a, a discussion in the New York Times. A prisoner of war to be provided with rations and a comfortable subsistence until the peace is a very different thing from a captured traitor to be tried by the courts and judged by the laws against treason. The one enjoys an honorable restraint, while the other may have to swing for it. And there are many in the North encouraging a more robust, let's say, treatment of those men caught in arms against the government. In fact, yesterday I was reading um, a long account by a Polish-born um, man who emigrates to the United States in 1849. 
He um, lives through the Civil War, actually serves as an interpreter at the US State Department. And he had participated in Poland's efforts to secure its liberty from Russia in 1830. He'd been imprisoned by the Russians. And he's astonished that the US doesn't simply hang the men that it catches as traitors to make an example of them immediately. And I think his framework, a kind of European one, about what happens when people wage war against their sovereign is quite different from how Lincoln approaches this question with a lot more kind of political delicacy around a republic and the rights that those people may or may not have. On the Confederate side, the key question is what becomes of those black men put in arms by the Union and, and then moved into battles against Confederates. And unlike the Union's decision to tacitly recognize Confederate soldiers as legitimate enemy combatants and to apply to them the laws of war, the Confederates don't ever really do this with black soldiers. And this raises the first and, and arguably one of my most important points, which is on the answer to the question of what makes the war unnecessarily deadly and what escalates the violence of the war, the answer there is race. The Confederacy refuses, in many respects, to recognize black soldiers as regular combatants. Now, the first blush at this, you probably know, Davis and others in the administration um, articulate a policy of returning captured black soldiers to the states to be handled as though they were in an act of insurrection by whatever the state punishment is, almost always capital punishment. This policy is, is sort of rescinded or modified, and by the middle of 1863, Lincoln, in fact, issues a proclamation explaining that if the Confederacy does follow through and execute black soldiers, the Union will respond by executing Confederate, captured Confederate soldiers held, held prisoner as a one-for-one. One. And as a result, the Confederacy is forced to kind of recognize them as legitimate combatants, but they do so with great reluctance. Um, Fort Pillow is probably the most famous, and certainly during the war, the most controversial and well-known of these instances in which black soldiers were denied the rights of surrender and murdered rather than being taken, taken prisoner by Confederate forces. But this happens in Olusti, at, in Florida, at the Battle of Olusti. It happens in Poison Spring, Arkansas. It happens in Saltville. It happens at the Battle of the Crater. So the instances, and these are... Um, in some respects, a manifestation of the way in which the Civil War is decentralized. We tend to think of the Civil War armies in a kind of analogous way to modern militaries. But in comparison, both armies are enormously decentralized, the result being that commanders on the ground have the opportunity to enact these kinds of policies or these kinds of practices, even in contradiction to a national policy um, that by the middle of 1863 was much looser on this question here. And I'll come back to race, but again, I would argue that that's the most significant question around who can fight. Then the other military question here is how can you fight? What are the legitimate ways of fighting? And I want to pose sort of, just pay attention to two issues here. The first one is the question of um, guerrillas and irregulars organized in most Confederate states and in several Union states that fight throughout the war. The Confederacy, of course, has a regular army. Um, they have a military chain of command that obeys the laws of war and that's recognized commonly. At the same time, there is a widespread system of irregular warfare that takes place, part of it due to proclamations like this um, from the governor of Louisiana, Thomas Moore, who issues this um, statement in June of 1862. Um, I'm going to actually read a different one here from Thomas 
Hindman. Hindman was the commander in Arkansas. After the Battle of Pea Ridge, Confederates, more or less, the Confederate regulars, abandoned the state. And in response, because the Union Army is there in force, Hindman issues what comes to be called the Band of Ten Order. He says, um, the, to the people of Arkansas, for the more effective annoyance of the enemy upon our rivers and in our mountains and woods, all citizens from this district are called upon to organize themselves into independent companies of ten men led by an elected captain to conduct guerrilla warfare without waiting for special instructions. And for the North, this is a gross violation of the laws of war. They are happy at this point, or willing at least, I should say, to extend the privileges and immunities of warfare of enemy combatant status to men in uniform following orders in a chain of command in the regular Confederate Army. They are not willing to do so to guerrillas as they organize. Sorry, I thought I had a guerrilla picture next. Um, and in both Arkansas and, well, I guess depending on how you view it, uh, I'll come to, I'll come to uh, Sherman in one moment. Um, Thomas Moore's call here on Louisianans um, to um, let the riverbanks swarm with armed patriots. Uh, this happens all up and down the Mississippi River. Hindman's order is along the Arkansas uh, side of the river. Moore's along the Louisiana side. Probably 5,000 men in Arkansas that organize and are sniping mostly at unarmed Union transports coming down the river. Um, and I'm going to talk in a minute about what that generates in terms of a counterinsurgency. But I want to shift to our friend there, um, uh, the first president of Louisiana State University, if you're keeping count. Um, and um, if that makes you dislike uh, the, the uh, team even less when you see them in competition with the, the, the Hokies or the Cavaliers, um, you can take solace in the fact that he has almost no presence on our campus. Um, I, I would defy you to name a American university that doesn't have its major administrative building named after its first president. Uh, we have exactly one picture of William Tecumseh Sherman, and you go into special collections and then into the men's room and sort of the third stall in the back <laughs> has this very nice painting. Um, uh, one of my colleagues has been trying as dean, and um, he's been there for 35 years, he's trying to get a plaza named after Sherman, and I, even that, I don't know if it will happen. Um, I, I bring up Sherman here to raise the issue of what the Confederacy considered to be the Union's violation of methods of fighting a war, and that is the hard war campaign. Sherman most famously, in both Mississippi, though they don't get a lot of sympathy, nor in South Carolina, where his troops actually destroyed a lot more, but most famously in Georgia, um, and if you're uh, a Valley resident, Sheridan's campaign in the Shenandoah Valley in 1864, those are campaigns of logistical devastation widespread destruction of physical resources. They are not targeting civilians. There's very, there are very few civilian casualties or fatalities as a result of either Sherman's campaign or Sheridan's in the Valley. But there is a huge amount of destruction of resources. And what this ensures, of course, is extensive hardship for civilians. Um, Sherman, they're operating under the laws of war. Enemy logistics are a, a viable target here, as they understand the laws of war. The Confederates disagree. Um, Sherman is obviously pursuing Napoleon's dictum that an army marches on its stomach and that if they can break up the railroad and deny the movement of food and material and war stuffs to the armies, then the war ends. But in the process of doing that, of course, it imposes great hardship on enemy citizens as well, non-combatants. And this generates a great deal of the contention um, within the Confederacy and the, and the sort of opposition 
to what, how the Union is fighting the war. Um, Sherman is part of the response to guerrillas as well. He's the one that actually responds to Thomas Hyndman um, in, his, in his Band of Ten order. Sherman is commanding along the Mississippi River. Um, and the response is what we would call today a counterinsurgency campaign. That is not a term that they used at the time, but effectively guerrillas are in insurgency within the South, and the Union mounts an increasingly robust effort to deny Confederate uh, guerrillas the ability to operate. And I'm going to come to this in just one moment. I realized I'm slightly out of order on my slides. I apologize. Um, this is an order that many of you might be familiar with. This is John Pope, Union General, in 1862. And I want to draw your attention to how he reacts to the issue of guerrillas in a very similar way to how Sherman reacts along the Mississippi, which is that the people in these regions will be held responsible for any injury that's supposed to say done to the track line or road or any attacks by bands of guerrillas in their neighborhood. The Union Army can't track down these guerrillas. They can't catch bands of 10 men who don't wear uniforms, who know the terrain, who hide in barns, who pretend to be civilians. And so the result, says Pope, and Sherman as well, as I say, in the West, is that the people themselves will be held responsible for these actions. Now, as you might imagine, the response of people who are caught in this position in which guerrillas enact some kind of violence against Union forces and the Union turns to levy the punishment on the civilians, the civilian response is, that wasn't us. Right? Those were people from another county. We didn't know them. They were outsiders. Don't punish us. We're not responsible. Pope puts this order out in advance in order to notify people that they cannot support. Guerrillas, of course, maintain what historians refer to as a domestic supply line. They get horses and food and, most importantly, intelligence from non-combatants that support them. And the Union's efforts to try to break that supply line, that, that link between true non-combatants and the irregular combatants that are guerrillas, involves an increasing escalation of violence against irregular combatants and increasingly hardship against non-combatants. So I'll return here. General Order Number 11 is probably, in my view, the culmination of the Union's counterinsurgency strategy. It's certainly its most robust and damaging when it comes to the fate of non-combatants. This is issued in the middle of August of 1863 um, by um, uh, General Ewing, what, uh, Sherman's brother-in-law, if you're seeing a family uh, resemblance there. Um, Ewing is the commander in the Western District of Missouri. This is a region uh, divided and notoriously fractious and violent with guerrillas operating there with, with gross impunity. Um, they, and this culminates in the sack of Lawrence, Kansas. And I'm not going to get into what happens in Lawrence, Kansas, other than to say that the guerrillas moved across the border into the state of Kansas, um, kept, rode early in the morning into the, the town of Lawrence, and pulled all of the males that they could find above the age of 15 out into the street and murdered them all in cold blood. Along, that was about 150 people, along with about 25 um, Union soldiers that, were, that happened to be on a train passing through Lawrence. It's the worst civilian atrocity of the Civil War. In response to that, Ewing issues General Order Number 11. This calls for eventually the wholesale depopulation of three western Missouri counties along the border. That is the staging ground for Bloody Bill Anderson and William Quantrill in their raids into Kansas and into and against Unionist civilians in Missouri. The order offers the civilians living in these counties the opportunity to remove themselves to a Union post, to take the oath of allegiance, and have their 
um, lives and livelihoods protected. If they refuse to take that, they are to be uh, expelled from the region and all of the homes and, and facilities in these three counties are put to the torch. There are about 20,000 affected civilians who are expelled from this region, moving now into a, an increasingly cold winter in, Missouri, in western Missouri. We don't have a good handle on the fatalities that result from this, but there are many civilian fatalities that result from this order. Ewing and Schofield, his commander, and all the way up to Lincoln, who authorized this decision, view this as a policy that stops short of explicit lethal violence, which it clearly does. On the other hand, the suffering that it generates is quite real and significant. It is a logical outcome of the policies that they had been pursuing here uh, against Confederate guerrillas throughout the region. Um, let me talk, let me give you one comment here that will at least slow me down for a second. Um, in, in talking about this, Halleck, Henry Halleck, who's Lincoln's um, general chief at the time, Halleck had written a treatise published in 1861 on the laws of nations, uh, a lot of which is dedicated to the laws of war. So Halleck knows what's lawful and what's not. Um, and he writes, this is Henry Halleck, in response to General Order Number 11. Um, such measures are within the recognized laws of war. They were adopted by Wellington and Portugal and the Russian armies in the campaign of 1812. Uh, so he knows that they are acceptable. And this is one of the ways in which we shouldn't rely too much on the laws of war to protect everyone. The laws of war are in, in large measure designed to facilitate military action. There are boundaries for them that violence, lethal violence, be directed only at legitimate combatants. That's called exercising discrimination. But there are also ways in which the laws of war enable violence in broader circumstances. And Halleck, recognizing this, says, still such orders, quote, should only be adopted, should be adopted only in cases of overruling necessity, which evidently were the cases here because General Order Number 11 stood. This is George Caleb Bingham's famous painting. Bingham was a wartime unionist in Missouri, um, served in the Missouri legislature during the war and held a kind of provisional uh, military post, remained loyal to the Union, but detested this order, regarded it as immoral and inhumane and, and counterproductive for the Union. And so he paints this in 1868 as a kind of critique. It's a somewhat, um, uh, I would say, melodramatic interpretation of what happens in the course of exercising General Order Number 11. Um, Ewing is on his, uh, or a caricature of Ewing is on his horse here, but Bingham's painting has, Bingham is one of the most important painters of the 19th century, um, he gets the last word in on this question. So militarily, these key questions are who can fight and how can you fight. At the same time, there are important ways in which civilians intersect with the war and shape how the war is going to be managed. Most importantly, I think the rhetoric that we hear from political and especially religious leaders is increasingly a rhetoric of righteousness. And this is intoxicating in war, but it is in the context certainly of the Civil War, and usually in most wars also um, quite dangerous. That is, it, it, it emboldens adversaries to believe that their enemies are not just um, opponents, but in fact kind of mortal enemies. Here I'll read you a passage from a northern minister writing about um, his sort of understanding of the Confederacy, relying on the story of Cain and Abel, as many Northerners did as a kind of metaphorical way to frame 
the, 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 the kind of abjectness of the evil they see in secession. In the whole history of human warfare, wrote this man, from that first civil war in which Cain slew his brother and received the ineffaceable mark of God's displeasure, nothing, nothing exceeds in fiendish malignity the acts of those southern men who in this war are fighting on the side of treason and rebellion. Right, treason and rebellion call from us a kind of political response. But the religious stigma here, right, by conjuring Cain and Abel, that is, and ministers on both sides um, are, quite, uh, are quite loose with this kind of language of condemning the enemy in um, apocalyptic tones, feeds a violence at the ground level that is kind of hard to control. Um, I will also note, and here I think is my gorilla picture, um, that it's important for us to remember that wars have a momentum of their own. My effort in this book was to try to account for the decisions that people made. As I understand history, history is people doing things. This is why I tell my students you need active verbs to write history. Passive verbs don't work. Active verbs explain and describe the ways in which people make policies and adopt certain practices and reject others. And it's important to remember that even in something as, as large as a war, we need to account for that. At the same time, it is also clear that wars have momentum and have inertia of their own. They don't operate autonomously. But certainly the process of escalation that moves from um, the efforts initially to pursue guerrillas to broader counterinsurgency strategies that fall quite heavily on civilians, that is a result of the war's momentum. The Union is deliberate about the policies they adopt. They don't adopt General Order Number 11 automatically. That isn't sort of generated by a computer. It is deliberate, but it is also part of this process. I will pause here and make note of one of the arguments, the kind of big arguments in the book, which is to reject the idea of the Civil War as the violence of the Civil War as moving in a kind of linear trajectory. <coughs> Our common assumption about all wars, and, and the Civil War among them, is that they begin, and with each passing moment, the violence of the war yields a kind of bitterness towards the enemy that generates more and more of that uh, dangerous, unnecessary violence. And I don't think that actually is an apt way of describing how the experience of the Civil War occurs. There are moments of escalation, and then there are moments of de-escalation. And this is partly because of the, the, the scale of the Civil War. Right, The Confederacy is larger than continental Europe. It has 3,000 miles of coastline. So there's a huge amount of variety within it, and because the armies are so decentralized. And I will explain later in talking about the laws of war the ways in which I would argue that by 1863 and 64 there was a stronger apparatus for controlling and punishing soldiers who violate the laws of war than there was in 1861 and 62, which is part of the way in which that cycle of escalation can then dip down again and then re return again. But it is not a kind of clear linear trajectory, I would argue. The last element here is to think about um, politics or ideology and war. And in this context, I want to talk about abolitionists for a minute. Because abolitionists had come of age in William Lloyd Garrison, the most famous white abolitionist, most importantly, in the reform era of the 1830s and 40s and 50s. These were the people dedicated to bettering and to kind of progressive ideals for the United States. They wanted the reform of hospitals and prisons and schools. And they wanted... Um, less violence, right? They are nearly all committed pacifists. Garrison, so much so, he writes to a friend during the Mexican War. He's in Massachusetts, and he writes to a friend and says, I saw a soldier in uniform on the street today, and I recoiled as though I had seen a snake. 
My animosity to military violence is so visceral that I can't even stand the sight of a soldier. And yet, Garrison is confronted, as all abolitionists are, as the Civil War begins, is confronted with this terrible dilemma. What if the only way to achieve the political goal towards which you have been working for decades now, the end of slavery, what if that can only come with military violence? And Garrison and other abolitionists reconcile themselves to this. And they become, in the North, the strongest cheerleaders for a hard and vigorous and long war. Because they understand that if the war ends in 1862, right, if, if um, McClellan had managed to organize himself, and I won't spend a lot of time bad-mouthing McClellan, but he doesn't do a very good job here on the peninsula. And if he had driven Joseph Johnson back into Richmond in, in June of 1862 or May of 1862 and the war had ended here, there would have been no Emancipation Proclamation. And the abolitionists know that they need, in effect, a kind of longer, more robust war. Their allies in this are a white confederacy that fights quite strongly against the Union and necessitates a, a long war, right? The ironies are many here. But what's significant about this is thinking about our modern orientation of hawks and doves, right? In the post-World War II era in American politics, the prevailing assumption is that the hawks are the conservatives, the political conservatives, the doves are the political liberals, and that those are kind of basic foundations in the way in which we say left and right. And what I would draw your attention to here are the ways in which the political liberals of the 1860s, that is the abolitionists, are the hawks. And the, and the political conservatives, the Democrats in the North, the ones who had, had been um, opposed to most of the reform measures, um, they're the political dove. I mean, they're the military doves, right? Those lines, in other words, are not fixed. Your eagerness or your willingness to encourage military violence depends a lot, I think, on what it is the war is accomplishing and what the war is supposed to accomplish. That's one of the lessons of the Civil War, and I think a kind of surprising one as I pondered it. All right, having talked about the ways in which um, there are all these various factors sort of escalating the violence of the war, I want to shift and talk about the things that restrain it. I'll spend just a minute on this uh, man, German-born Francis Lieber, who moved to the United States in the 1830s, teaches law in South Carolina for a long time, and then finally gets his much-awaited promotion, academics are the same everywhere, um, to Columbia University in 1860, where he takes up a post as professor of law. Um, Lieber becomes an advisor, a kind of informal advisor to the War Department, mostly because he's a ceaseless self-promoter and writes letters to everybody, volunteering to do whatever he can. Um, uh, every, uh, just take my word for it that he writes everybody. Um, uh, Lieber's papers are at the Huntington Library in California. And they take him up on it. Lieber is, is probably the most astute political philosopher of the period and has paid and read more carefully in the laws of war and the long just war tradition going back to St. Augustine than probably anyone alive, certainly anyone in the United States. And so he takes that huge body of knowledge that is the, the, the doctrine of just war from people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas all the way through Hugo Grotius and Emmer de Vittel. Vittel is a Swiss-born... Um, writer in the 18th century, Washington has a copy of Vittel, and Jefferson has a copy of Vittel on the law of nations and the laws of war. What Lieber does is he makes them practical, right? These had previously been a thousand page tomes with ponderous footnotes and long philosophical discourses, and he effectively writes the United States' first rules of engagement. 
Right? When our soldiers go into action today, they have a little kind of yellow plasticized card with the ROE or the rules of engagement. Those are a direct legacy of the work. Francis Lieber writes the general, comes to be published as General Orders Number 100 of the Lieber Code, issued in April of 1863 by the Union Army. And it is 185 sort of short articles, mostly a sentence in length. If you occupy a city, you cannot destroy um, houses of uh, worship. You cannot destroy um, universities or institutions of repositories like libraries, right? Instructions, in other words, not philosophy. The Confederacy offers no equivalent sort of formal issue, though I would argue that they follow the laws of war in a very similar way. They condemn the Libra Code for what it sanctions, and it sanctions a great deal of violence as well. But I think it's more interesting for us to ask the question of why it is that Civil War participants pay attention to the laws of war, and why do they incorporate those? And I'll, I'll offer two answers here. The first is strategic, that they are interested in attracting European support. This is essential for the Confederacy, and never achieved, of course. But they want, especially Britain and France, to recognize them. And one of the ways to do that, to prove that you are a nation, is to act like a nation. And the way you do that in the mid-19th century is you observe the laws of war. So if you look at the Confederate propaganda efforts in Europe, and certainly at Jefferson Davis's addresses and speeches, there is a continual emphasis on the restraint exercised by Confederate soldiers, juxtaposed, of course, with the wanton cruelty and savagery of the North, in an effort there, a very blatant PR effort, to try to solicit European support, because that the, the question of how you behaved as an army is a marker for civilization in this context. It is also a question because armies want people to represent their values, that when the army in a democracy goes abroad or enacts violence, it does so as a reflection of us. And so just as today, so in these democracies, of the mid-19th century, citizens wanted the army to reflect them. I want to read from a letter written by a, a soldier um, in the Confederate army that he sends to Jefferson Davis in 1864. This is a, a young man who had been, he's from New Orleans, his city is captured by the Union in April of 1862, and he winds up fighting in Georgia and is assigned a guard at Andersonville. I suspect most of you at least know the name of Andersonville, the most um, uh, deadly Confederate POW camp, tens of thousands of Union soldiers perish there under atrocious conditions. What he's concerned with as a guard is the fall line, or the dead line. So there's a stockade that's not very big, and maybe five or eight feet back from that, there's a kind of line in the dirt that says, if you get any closer to the, the gate, we're entitled to shoot you, which guards do. And he writes to Jefferson Davis, and he says, we have many thoughtless boys here who think the killing of a Yankee will make them, make them great men. But Anderson believes that Davis would never sanction such action. I make this statement to you, knowing you to be a soldier, statesman, and Christian, that if possible, you may correct such things, together with many others that exist here. He sees the suffering of these soldiers, and he knows this is not the way in which a modern, civilized nation, under the laws of war, takes care of its prisoners. And this kind of correction, this kind of internal critique, in this case, a Confederate, though there are, of course, analogous things on the northern side, robustly from the Democrats, who use every incidence of excess to criticize Lincoln. Uh, this is part of an ongoing Democratic dialogue about how to fight war. His conclusion 
what he tells Davis, you will not be surprised to hear. We should, Anderson believed, do as we would be done by. That is, even in war, the golden rule applies. And this effort is continuous, as I say, on both sides. There is also, I think, more broadly, the effort to maintain rules and laws of war out of a strategic interest in protecting your own troops. And here I'll turn to prisoner of war camps in Andersonville in particular. This is one of the famous images that emerged from the prisoners, both at Belle Isle. Here, there's a big release of prisoners in June of 1864, and then after Sherman moves through uh, Georgia in late in the year in Andersonville. Many of these men had been reduced to starvation, um, and images like this proliferate across the North in the wake of that. Images that are transferred into woodcuts. Newspapers can't publish these images, but lots of the newspapers and Harper's Weekly has big, full-page images that are very near replicas of this sort of an image. And so the part of the issue is, of course, if you don't want your soldiers who become prisoners to be treated this way, you need to protect those prisoners that you hold, that your enemy is likely to adopt the same the same standards. And so part of what emerges in the course of the war, late in the war as these images circulate, is a call in the North for revenge. And this manifests in February of 1865 with a robust debate in the U.S. Senate over what's called the retaliation provision. And I'll talk about retaliation for just one second and then return to this. Retaliation in the laws of war is not revenge. It's very distinct from revenge. And it is, as Lieber says, properly a part of the laws of war. Retaliation is what you are authorized to do if your enemy violates the laws of war. You can make a kind of complementary violation in exactly the same proportion in terms of numbers and the status of the victim. So if your enemy irregularly executes a soldier, you can execute one of your captured soldiers. If he, your enemy executes a civilian, you can execute one civilian. But you can't be disproportionate in these. And in the wake of this, there's a discussion in the U.S. Senate about whether the U.S. should impose the same rations and the same treatment protocols that the Confederate Army seems to be using against its soldiers, against those captured and held in places like Camp Morton that I showed you earlier, or Camp Douglas in the north. And the U.S. Senate rejects this provision, and interestingly, it's Charles Sumner, one of the leading abolitionists and radicals who's been calling for a hard war, who very clearly draws the line at this. And he says that this provision proposed by a fellow Republican, a guy named Benjamin Wade, this provision effectively calls on the U.S. government to starve its prisoners. And this is barbarism, and we frankly will not do it. And the provision is voted down, but it is a recognition of the strategic interests that each side have. Retaliation factors on the battlefield continuously around the country throughout, and I'm going to highlight this one quick story that happens in the Shenandoah Valley, um, I grew up in Michigan, so I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit kinship here with George Armstrong Custer. Um, he has got a great set of curls. Um, beyond that, his qualities are not very impressive, but he was also a good self-promoter and, of course, acquired his star in the war, and then you know his end. Um, he is chasing John Singleton Mosby around the Shenandoah Valley in the summer and fall of 1864, having very little success. Um, Mosby commands the 43rd Virginia Cavalry Battalion, a regularly enrolled regiment, though it operates very irregularly. Um, Mosby, after the war, says we weren't guerrillas. 
I don't find it a very convincing defense given the way his men operated, but it is important to note that the violence that they meted out was directed only at soldiers, not at Unionist civilians, of which there were many in Fauquier and Warren and other of those counties. But in any event, Mosby's men um, acknowledged that in, a, in an engagement um, near Berryville, they execute a Union officer who had been captured and injured. Um, there are Confederate witnesses to this event. When Custer hears that a Union officer has been unjustly murdered, he executes six Confederates in um, uh, Front Royal, has them hung and left hanging there. And this is a, not retaliation. It is a violation of the laws of war. And in response, Mosby selects six prisoners of Custer's that he has, he executes those and then publishes a letter to Custer, which I think makes it to Grant. Um, we don't have a dialogue between Grant and Custer, but my suspicion reading between the lines is that what Grant said to Custer was, don't do that again. What Mosby did was lawful and just under the laws of war. His measure of retaliation restored the balance. Custer had executed six, he executes six, and this is a moment in which you can see the kind of escalation that we might expect. Six for six, or one for six, and then 18 for six, and 30 for six, and 100 for 30, and so on it would go, and instead, it stops. There are no more executions. Mosby's men, when Custer can take them, he brings into um, prisoners uh, as prisoners, and Custer continues to take Union prisoners when he seizes them. He sees them. So this is an example of the ways in which the laws of war and the knowledge about how retaliation in particular works that helps dramatically reduce the violence that can happen at that, that sort of frissible point of capture. Two more points and then I will, and then I will sum up here because we're steaming towards quarter two and I want to have time for slides, I mean uh, for questions here. Um, the most important restraint that's exercised and the single most important element reducing the amount of violence in the war is the decision of enslaved people to pursue freedom rather than violence. We might imagine if we were sort of approaching this um, uh, in a kind of anodyne fashion that if anybody had a claim to kind of righteous violence, it might be those enslaved people who had suffered generations, centuries at this point, of violence against themselves. What we see, and that's in fact what Confederates expect when Lincoln offers his Emancipation Proclamation and what many white Northerners expect. Salmon Chase, the abolitionist in Lincoln's cabinet, says we shouldn't do this thinking about emancipation because what we're talking about is servile insurrection here, right? the horrors of Haiti bubbling up. But in fact, what happens is an enormous amount of restraint by enslaved people who choose freedom and escape rather than revenge, the instances of revenge by enslaved people against their masters are few and far between. Nothing on the scale that individuals have been expecting in the advance, uh, in the discussions about what emancipation might mean. And I'll read for you just a bit of the weekly Anglo-African, a northern abolitionist newspaper, calling on black men to enlist. They use, interestingly, Haiti as their example. Did Toussaint L'Overture, the, the, the leader of the Haitian Revolution, stop to ask the question, should we enlist? Did his followers stop to ask that? No, no, not at all. They rose up with all their strength and struck blow after blow for their freedom. Now, we can debate what actually happened in the Haitian Revolution. It was a lot bloodier and more wantonly bloody than what transpired in the, in the American, the US Civil War. But it's important to recognize the ways in which the legacy that black Americans use is a legacy of martial resistance. 
and of pursuing freedom through martial violence that is within the Union Army as regularly enrolled soldiers on battlefields. And that decision keeps the war from spinning into a kind of racial uh, fratricidal conflict that it easily could have been, uh, could have assumed that many people anticipate. Um, all right, now two last quick points here that also offer restraint. Um, Lincoln, of course, throughout the war has a, a, his paramount goal, as he called it in his letter to Horace Greeley, is reunion. The harder the war is fought and the more vigorously and more damagingly to civilians, the less likely true reunion reconciliation is. So Lincoln has this political restraint on him from the very beginning of the war. He needs the war finished as quickly as possible and with Southern, particularly white Southern communities, as intact as possible in order to make sure that the post-war period is a civil one itself. This is not a restraint that Jefferson Davis suffers under, right? His effort is to, is to bring his country to independence. He doesn't need to leave with anyone friends with the Union. It is a, a break throughout the war on Lincoln's actions here. And last um, is the kind of common emotional reactions at the ground level, I've been talking mostly in terms of policy, but as we think about soldiers as ordinary human beings who go into engagements with enemies and into engagements with civilians or non-combatants, the elements of mercy, of compassion, of pity, which surface in contraband camps, contraband camps are those places into which enslaved people fled to seek their freedom, um, and they have high casualty rates in them, the Union doesn't take very good care of these people, but it does at least generate among Union soldiers those sort of common human sympathies. So I don't want to make this discussion sound entirely abstract and as though it, it occupies only some realm of policy. So let me con conclude by offering my take on why this matters and try to kind of summarize where I stand on all this. Our first is to point out that the U.S. Civil War is not an exceptional one. We tend to talk of it as the bloodiest civil war. It's not. The Taiping Rebellion at the time claims 20 million lives. It's happening contemporaneously with the U.S. Civil War. Um, it is a sometimes just and sometimes unjust war, the Civil War, and like all conflicts. And in that sense, I hope that we don't refer quite so often to the U.S. Civil War with the simple definite article, the, as though it's the only one. Um, that's how I list it in my course catalog at LSU. And I say the Civil War, students know what I'm talking about. And yet, I would say it looks like most civil wars in its patterns of violence. Second is that the war doesn't move. The violence of the conflict does not follow a linear pattern. Um, there are these cycles of escalation and de-escalation that happen in different places and at different points in time. And so when we think about military conflicts, we need to be as precise as we possibly can. We need to pay attention to geography, we need to pay attention to time, and we need to think how these factors are always under human control and don't simply move of some inevitable shift in one direction or the other. Third, I would note that states in the Civil War play a key role. The fact that the United States is fighting a community that wants to be a nation among nations, that what Jefferson Davis is looking for is recognition from abroad, helps limit the violence. Because they are appealing to the world for respect, they follow and observe, except with regard to black soldiers, they follow and observe, sorry, the laws of war. And so as we encounter a landscape in the 21st century in which sometimes we are at odds with people who, that is, we are at military odds, with people who don't have states, think Al-Qaeda, right? This puts us in a very difficult position. Um, I'm not here to make a brief on behalf of ISIS, 
But ISIS is a better enemy for the United States because they are a state-bound territorial entity, which because they are responsible for the people within it, it forces a modest degree of responsibility in terms of interacting diplomatically with your enemy. And it's unsure what sort of the future holds, but to the degree to which we can see an example or um, a kind of useful um, episode in the 19th century, I would say it is the virtue of states, and dare I even say it, the virtue of nationalism, in that people's attachment to their state and the degree to which that state should represent them also compels a modest amount of responsibility. And last, I would conclude by noting that there is no clear just war in the sense that we can say the Civil War was up or down a just war or an unjust war. Instead, when we talk about justice in war, we need to be, we need to kind of ratchet our microscope down to a much more granular level and talk about prisoners and irregulars and non-combatants and our own soldiers and the kinds of weapons and tactics and strategies that we use. And only then can we come to a proper reckoning of whether our army behaves in a moral fashion as we wish it to, not at the kind of broad macro level, but only paying very careful attention to these particulars. So let me conclude there, and we can move to questions. And I think we've got microphones that are being passed around. Okay. Thank you so much for your talk. Uh, while I was listening to you, I was reminded of uh, Charles Royster's book, uh, Destructive War. I just briefly wondered if you could talk about sort of how your model of escalation and de-escalation fits in with sort of his model of kind of a increasing complicitness of both the citizen populations in the North and South, um, identifying with figures like um, William T. Sherman and as the violence increases, sort of being um, in favor of that. You guys maybe talk about that relationship. Yeah, um, it's a weird thing to talk about because I, I actually sit in Charlie Royster's office now. Um, I was working on this project before I went to LSU and he left two years before I arrived, but obviously there's something in that space that sort of forces its people to think about all these awful elements. Um, Royster's book, The Destructive War, is a classic. If you haven't read it, go out and get it. It is a fantastic book, beautifully written. My concern with Royster's book, and I suppose what differentiates my analysis here, is that Royster much more, he sees a very linear development. And he sees much more of war as a, um, an object that, a machine that goes of its own accord. Um, and I mean, I remember talking to him about this when I was just a graduate student and he came to interview for a job at the University of Virginia. Um, and he was happy to say that, that he thought from his experience, he was involved in Vietnam, that what happened in wars was out of the hands of people. And there's no question that civilians live and experience what he called a vicarious war, in which they read these stories about atrocities and they get their bloodlust goes strong and they tell their soldiers in letters, go get the enemy. At the same time, I see a lot of evidence that the opposite happens as well, that even as civilians become vicarious, they also have vicarious sympathy and vicarious compassion and vicarious restraint, and that gets fed back through as well. So I think I differentiate myself from, from Charlie's book in that way, but as I say, it's still a, it's a terrific book and certainly worth reading. Thank you for your talk. One question I would have is, and like you, I was born in the North and then came to the South when I was about 13 years old, so I've been here for 55 plus years. Uh, the North seems to have named the war the Civil War because they won. I would <laughs> debate that name. 
simply because a civil war is a general uprising against a central government. Nobody in New York, nobody in Maine, nobody in Michigan joined in to fight this war. It was purely the South. It should be named the war between the states. Now, we've talked about laws of war, of which you see should, should, be, it should have been applied in the Civil War, and yet when we were fighting the Native Americans on this land, we did no such thing as a, to follow the laws of war, nor did we follow many of them during World War II. War is hell, the heck with the laws of war, you fight a war to win it and you do what you need to do. You sound like a realist. Uh, there is a whole community of philosophers that reject the idea of just war as a kind of fig leaf that covers up the violence and the essential murderous nature of war. Um, on the question of naming, I would encourage you to read, and I'm not just shilling for LSU, my colleague Gaines Foster, who's a brilliant Southern historian, wrote a book, I mean a book, wrote an article that appeared in the um, Journal of the Civil War Era last year on the naming of the war, which is by far the most effective treatment of how that name has changed. Of course, the Union's initial U.S. response was that this is the war of the rebellion, and that's what the official uh, record of the Civil War is called, the official records of the War of the Rebellion, 127 volumes, and a whole lot more in the archives. If you think that's, if that exhausts you, you've got more to read. Um, uh, and the Civil War is a compromise. Um, this is Gaines's argument, and I think he persuasively shows it with a very long chronological assessment beginning in the war for how people refer to it all the way through to the end. Um, it might be a war between states, but only if you mean nation states. Alabama and Michigan did not fight this war, I would argue. Two giant federal governments fought it. Jefferson Davis knew that, and so did Lincoln, and they, um, they didn't pay, neither of them paid much heed to state rights. All right. Uh, yeah. uh, what was the uh, Confederacy response to the massacre at Lawrence, Kansas? Did it, did it get all the way to Richmond, or? It, it did, so the question is about the response to the Lawrence Massacre. Um, it is an ambivalent response. I would say initially there was outright denial. Jefferson Davis, long after he should have known better, celebrates what happened there. There are a handful of contrary voices. There are a handful of newspapers, one in Georgia that I quote, in which Confederates say, this is not how we fight. I mean, there are many Confederates that don't take responsibility for guerrillas and reject the idea of guerrillas. Robert E. Lee, most famously among them, Lee detested guerrillas, both because they were not very effective and also because they fought outside the laws of war. He was a West Point man um, trained to honor and all of that. And so Lee continuously tried to restrict the operation of guerrillas and bring those men through the draft into the regular armies. Um, Lee himself didn't comment on that um, but, the, but the Battle of the Crater happens under his watch. I mean, that's William Mahone of Virginia who sort of oversees and manages the Confederate attack on, on black soldiers there in the crater. Um, and Lee kind of skirts the issue there. But in general, I would say Lawrence, Kansas is by far the, the most egregious of those kinds of what we would call today an atrocity. Um, and, and pretty soon Confederates just stop writing about it. Um, and Quantrill and Anderson as guerrillas way on the west are kind of written out of the story. Um, it's an extreme case, but it's more typical than not of the kind of disregard for civilian lives that guerrillas have. And part of the reason that they, I mean, they often end up killing white southerners, um, guerrillas do, and, and part of the kind of damaging nature and why the response by the Union, which is to execute guerrillas, is so severe. Um, all they do is intensify the violence of war against everyone. One last question. You mentioned you visited the Huntington Library uh, and I'm wondering, was that your favorite resource? Or did you find 
another fun resource you can share with us? Well, I spent an awful lot of time reading the records of the provost marshal in uh, the National Archives. Um, there are, so, you know, there's 127 volumes of the general, uh, of the official records, which people think that's all of the stuff in the Civil War from the North. In fact, I would estimate it's maybe 3% of what the U.S. has collected. Because if you read the provost marshal records, to give you one example, the Department of the Gulf, which was uh, my old friend Ben Butler. Um, uh, Butler commanded in 1862 in New Orleans. In 1862 alone, there's 26 boxes of the Department of Gulf records, each with probably 400 pieces of paper in it. Um, there are seven military departments in that the Union manages. So what I did was read through a lot of that material in a very kind of aimless way, trying to understand what happens, because the provost marshal is responsible for regulating what the Union, the Union Army, how it behaves. And you get a lot of complaints when Union soldiers steal things or break into people's homes. They get, the people go to the provost marshal, they write letters. And so I was trying to kind of at the ground level get a sense of what is that dynamic like between civilians and the Union Army? And how does the Union Army punish? The Union Army has a huge court, courts martial system. They courts martial a lot of soldiers for dereliction of duty or conduct unbecoming for things that they do to civilians, things that they shouldn't be doing, stealing all the way up to murder and rape for which there are a number of Union soldiers executed. And so that was the, I don't know if that's interesting, but that was the, 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 the ground level. The Huntington, I mean, this is a beautiful facility. The, art, the reading room upstairs is spectacular. Um, the Huntington Library is in San Marino next to Caltech. So it, unfortunately, is even nicer um, as a place to do research. It's sort of academic paradise there living in Pasadena, um, which I did in 2001 when I had a one-year-old and my wife still hasn't forgiven me. So I do more of my work here in, in the dreary confines of the National Archives than I do at the Huntington. But Lieber's papers are out there, so it's, if you're writing about the laws of war, it's kind of hard to resist. Because as I say, he wrote and interacted with everybody in the Union High Command. So, um, but I mean, it's surprising. There's records for this everywhere. Because as I, as I say, Americans in the Civil War thought about these issues. And that's sort of, I and mean, obviously I'm writing this book during our, um, our military campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and thinking that we might learn from Civil War Americans about the degree to which they really thought through these issues in their specificity, and feeling like we haven't really done that the last decade or decade and a half in a way that we should have, given that we're a democracy and those armies are us. Americans at the time knew that, and that's why they paid very careful attention. So if there's anything that I want people to kind of, the meta lesson to learn is to be mindful because those armies are doing what we do as a democracy. Thank you.